You're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio on this Aloha Friday. This is Catherine Cruz. Starting next week, notices are going out to 17,000 island residents randomly selected to take part in a one-year pilot project. Hawaiian Electric Company is calling it Shift and Save. It's designed to get you to change your habits and use high-energy appliances during non-peak times to take advantage of cheaper rates. How much cheaper? Well, how about cutting your rate in half? Uh, HECO and the Public Utilities Commission are behind the rollout. Jim Kelly is HECO's Vice President for Communications. Next week, we're going to be sending out notifications to about 4% of all Hawaiian Electric customers on Oahu, Maui, and Hawaii Island. So that's roughly about 17,000 customers. And they're going to be getting, uh, they've been randomly selected to participate in what is a one-year pilot program to try out time-of-use rates, and we're calling this Shift and Save. And what this pilot program does is it provides incentives for you to shift your use of electricity from the evening peak, which is between 5 and 9 p.m., to the daytime hours between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. The rate during that period will be half what it is today. So if you can start thinking about how you use your electricity and when you use it and see what you can move to the daytime hours, um, you're going to definitely be in a position to save some money. And the big appliances that are the energy suckers, I mean, we're talking refrigerators and dryers, right? I mean, refrigerators you got to keep on all the time, but dryers, not so much. No, and, and you think about what anything that generates heat, so your dryer, your oven, your stove, your water heater, all of those appliances are going to be the big contributors to your electric bill. Now, some stuff, I think there are options, obviously, for changing when you use the dryer. And you, you could, if you were on this program and you decided that you wanted to install a timer on your water heater so that it wouldn't be turning on between 5 and 9 p.m., that would be something that you can do so that it would only be heating water in the other periods. You can pre-plan meals and have them just so you are using the microwave during the 5 to 9 period rather than using the oven or the stove. Anything that you can do just to minimize the use of electricity between 5 and 9 p.m. and move some of that to the daytime hours, you're going to end up saving money. And you folks have been looking at this pilot for some time now. You know, how has it worked in other states? It does work in other states, and that's that's really important. The reason that the Public Utilities Commission has decided to do this as a pilot for just one year is really to see how this works in real life in Hawaii with real households and real businesses, rather than just importing a program that's used elsewhere. And it has been effective elsewhere in reducing that peak demand on the electric grid, which usually happens here between, again, 5 and 9 p.m. People come home and they turn a lot of things on. If we can get people to do more of that activity during the daytime hours, then that's going to be less that we're going to have to use fossil fuel power plants that are going to be ramping up during that period. It's going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, really help. Ultimately, the idea is that, that this would be action on not only saving money, but would also be stabilizing the grid, making it more resilient, and also, you know, really taking action on climate change. And of the 17,000 people that will be in this program initially, I don't know, have you divvied it up a certain way, you know, based on any particular island? No, they're they're geographically. Um, we've really tried to get a diverse um, uh, group of customers. It's it's fifteen thousand residential, about seventeen hundred business customers, and they're going to be every kind of customers. They're going to be people that have electric vehicles, rooftop solar, heavy users, light users in different areas. So we really want to, the, the idea of this is to really get feedback and get that data collected over the next year so the Public Utilities Commission can decide how this program rolls out, what, what tweaks need to be made, what adjustments need to be made to make sure that it, it works for everyone. So the notices go out next week that you have been selected. <laughs> yeah, uh, like winning the lottery. Yeah, but what if you don't want to participate? Thanks for asking that question. People can decide they don't want to participate. You can opt out anytime for the first six months for both residential 
and business customers. There is a cap on how much their bill can be affected by the rate. So basically, we're giving people six months to practice before it really has an impact on their rates. So nobody's going to get financially hurt by this. We really want people to come into it with an open mind and to give it a try. So you get six months basically to practice, try it out, see how it works in your business, in your household. And if it doesn't work for you, then you can opt out. Okay. But if I do want to join and I wasn't selected, what then? Well, I think what we want to do is we want to see, we want to get past the roll. So this is going to take uh, effect on October 1st. But again, if you're not selected for the pilot, you, you won't get any notification, so you won't be in it. But, and nobody else's, if you're not in it, your rates aren't going to change. Nothing's going to change your situation. I think we're going to see how it goes. This is a new thing for us. It's a new thing for the PUC. And, and at some point, we'll open it up then for people that want to choose to join and try it out. So if you're not selected, you know, I mean, I know in my family, we kind of already started doing this. Just to That's try and, good. you know, get into some good habits, you know, like brushing yes. your teeth all the time. But yeah, so so I guess that would be a thing, too, is, hey, just try it, you know, see if you can get your bill down. Yeah, we really want to make sure that people do come into it with an open mind and do at least give it a try. The purpose of this program is it's about encouraging customers to shift electricity from the evening to the daytime hours. I mean, and the people will say, well, why, why do we want to do that? Because during the day, we have solar that is abundant, it's clean, and it's relatively inexpensive. If we can get more people to use that energy during the day and less energy at night, um, that's going to be, over time, that's going to make the grid stronger, and it's going to ultimately could potentially save everyone money. Okay. So if you are used to doing your laundry at night, just kind of rethink that plan, just rethink your activities, you know, because it, it will affect your pocketbook. It, it will. And, and ultimately, we're going to give people that are selected for the pilot and then ultimately all customers, they can go online. There's going to be a web portal. So you can see what your bill would be under the old rate and under the time of use rate. So you can play with it, and we're going to give you the tools that are going to show you, hey, if we just move this amount into the daytime, I could potentially save this amount of money. So people aren't going to, they're, they're going to have information and tools that they can use to figure out if this, if this works for them. But from what we've seen so far, even just a, some fairly small changes in, in habits can end up saving you four or five dollars a month, depending on, on how much electricity you usually use. And all this will be on our website. Um, the PUC is overseeing this, this program. So this isn't just a Hawaiian electric program um, that, was, that we just decided we want to do. This is part of uh, the PUC's plan to, again, look at ways that we can give people more choices, give people more options, rather than just the standard rate, which is the way it's been for probably mm -hmm. more than a century, give people more control over their bills, and then ultimately, what can we do to move toward the 100% decarbonized economy that, that we want to achieve by 2045? That was Jim Kelly, who won Electric Vice President for Communications, talking to us about the rollout of a test program called Shift and Save. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Karen Casey, author of Each Day a New Beginning. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about insights on cultivating more love and peace in your life. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company.
this summer, a church took the first step in better understanding the history of the Hawaiian language. Here to talk about this is HBR's Ku'uvegi Reishi. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. For centuries, uh, Olala Hawaii, the Hawaiian language, thrived in the islands as an oral tradition, right? With songs, chants used to record history and share stories over generations. But once the Olala Hawaii transitioned into written form following the arrival of American missionaries in 1820, it sort of altered the future course of Hawaiian language we commonly hear today. And so Hawaiian immersion teacher Kalania Kel Wilson remembers hearing from his grandmother a different kind of Hawaiian than the one he was being taught in school. Uh, she would read the Hawaiian language Bible or Bible Hemolele every morning and every night before she went to bed. My grandparents spoke Hawaiian, so I lived with them. And when I first went to the university to learn Hawaiian, I used to come back home and my grandmother, Panana Pine, born and raised Kukui Haile, almost calling me. So that's kind of what's initiated the self-education uh, about our Olelo and our language after a century of Americanization genocide programs implemented in the Hawaiian Kingdom. So Wilson has been researching the evolution of the Hawaiian language and especially in the earliest days of this transition to written form. So going back, the alphabet commonly used today in Hawaiian language education, it's the one I grew up with in Hawaiian immersion, includes 12 letters. You've got the five vowels, everyone knows that, and then uh, seven consonants. Uh, HKL, MNPW, and then of course the Okina. But the earliest printed version of a Hawaiian alphabet in 1822, so two years after uh, American missionaries uh, first landed here, reveals a system with 21 letters, including five additional consonants, B, D, R, T and V. And this was the alphabet used to translate the Holy Bible, the Baibalahemolele, which became sort of the first text used by Native Hawaiians to learn this written form of their language. Now, uh, some of these words have survived uh, in spoken form, right? Like Baibala, we hear people say that. Uh, you'll hear, especially amongst folks uh, who speak uh, the Nihau dialect or the Hawaiian language spoken on Nihau. They've got the R's, they've got the T's, but these letters are not widely taught in written form. So Wilson hopes to create a curriculum around what he calls Christian Hawaiian language. Get the curriculum and the next phase of Hawaiian language revitalization is starting, which is, you know, recovering all of these things and these letters and words and then looking at the evolution of these words. Because I, I think that's really important is um, how our culture and language and islands went through an evolution with the collision of foreigners coming here. You know, us changing religion, changing governments, um, the oppression of the educational system for over a century that spanked my grandparents. That kind of inspires me to do this. You know, that's why I do this. So Wilson drafted a resolution calling on the United Church of Christ to fund a Christian Hawaiian language revitalization program. And that was approved amongst local churches here in Hawaii and went on uh, to the General Synod in Indianapolis in June. So this is about, we're talking upwards of 700 delegates and voters, uh, a majority approving the resolution. So the next step is for the UCC to work with other conferences, government agencies and organizations to figure out what that dollar amount uh, could be. And uh, Wilson hopes that that money can fund further research, as you mentioned earlier, but also that curriculum development. To teach our ohanas and families uh, from the Hale Pule Association of Hawaiian Evangelical Churches, which is comprised of Hawaiian Kingdom churches built from 1820 um, to 1893. And, and because the 21 letters through the began there, we'd like to support um, these sites on all of the islands um, to teach this um, system of um, Hawaiian language so interesting, I, I, I've been uh, speaking, I uh, didn't for this story, but speaking to Hawaiian language scholars and um, academics 
teachers up at the university who say, you know, this is something that can be added to the current curriculum in Hawaiian language immersion schools or at Hawaiian language education institutions at the university level. So there's no uh, necessary need to sort of duplicate another program, but um, the money is and the effort is starting in the Hawaiian churches. So maybe uh, there's some way to collaborate there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see because, uh, you know, for Wilson at least, bringing back the B's and the D's and the R's and the T's really connect us to the Nihau language, for example, but also um, Samoan, right? When we think of Talofa and, and other languages in Polynesia that can maybe um, help us all gain a bit more solidarity in that language revitalization portion of efforts. So did he, did Wilson actually then go to Indianapolis this, this summer? He did. He did, uh, along with uh, our own uh, archivist, historian, Ron Williams. Um, they went up to, um, and you look at, we have the resolution online, but they've got um, all the research involved in sort of bringing that resolution to fruition, um, but he is also working, Wilson, on a dissertation that looks at further, uh, I guess, uh, um, sort of the bigger picture in other programs and not just specifically with uh, the change in the language, but like he was saying earlier, changes in government and culture and whatnot. So that should be due out next year as well. Um, but he did go up and he did mention that the biggest or strongest opposition to this effort was in fact coming from our local churches here in Hawaii. Really? Yes. And I, I haven't had a chance to uh, get any response from the UCC toward that um, end, but that is what he had mentioned, which is interesting. Well, you know, when I first got wind of this, I was hearing it uh, framed as like restitution from the churches it for is, what was taught. Right. So it would be, a, a, it was framed as reparations in, in that initial uh, resolution. Uh, but there was also another resolution that was passed that was um, sort of more focused on um, reparations for schooling of Native Hawaiians at that time that sort of pulled them away from culture and, you know, uh, pulled them away from their language. Uh, but this one in particular is sort of yeah, focused on bringing back that that Christian Hawaiian language, which would be interesting to see if anyone opens a Bible Hamalele today, you will see these extra five consonants everywhere. Yesu Christo is one, Bible right on the front is another. So to see that um, being taught in the schools would be um, something that I think would expand our understanding of the language a bit more. It's interesting because language uh, from where I'm from, from Guam, yeah. the Chamorro language was also oral. And it was the Spanish that created uh, a, uh, I was told, a dictionary that they created to be able to understand what the natives were talking about. <laughs> you know, so it, it's just fascinating to to uh, just delve into the history of language. And when you go from oral to written and, and me, uh, you know, today, I value mm -hmm. the dictionary, you know, because it just provides something, you know, a connection to the past that... Um, that, that may have been lost. And that's exactly right. We we put up on the website that it was the first ever printed alphabet uh, that was actually, you know, um, ever done where they pressed it and they printed it out and made several hundred copies of that that was circulated. And it's this alphabet and not the one I grew up learning. So that was sort of an eye opener for me. I un But my understanding is that several years later, it took a while to standardize the Hawaiian language in written form. And so it did evolve even in that short period from when we had this uh, 1822 printing until uh, a vote was made amongst uh, missionaries and Hawaiian scholars to then reduce it to the seven consonants and which is what we know of today so uh digging into this history really does give us a greater understanding and probably appreciation for some of the work being done at the time to make such a big transition from oral to written yeah fascinating but thank you so much kuvehi mahalo we have been talking to hbr's kuvehi rishi you can read her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org
Welcome to Civil Beat has a story tied to the Red Hill saga leading up to the fuel-contaminated water crisis. It's a deep dive by reporter Christina Jedra, who joins us today for our reality check. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, so your story is about a fuel director up at Red Hill who tried to flag some problems with the system up there. That's right. This was back in 2021, so before the leaks that kicked off this water contamination crisis that is going on. Um, Lieutenant Commander Shannon Banks uh, was new as the fuels director, and right away she said she encountered some problems. Uh, Higher-ups were preventing her from reporting a fuel leak at Pearl Harbor, and she said they were misusing federal funds to cover that up. And she also raised concerns about the facility's fire suppression system. Uh, This 50 plus million dollar system was installed in case of a fire at Red Hill. And according to her, it was never functional. And this is all from documents that we received at Civil Beat um, showing her complaints to the Navy Inspector General and also um, her command's effort to investigate her claims. And so the uh, fire suppression system obviously is something uh, that is a flag because of what happened and what led to the fuel spill. Right, if people recall, so the, this whole fuel contamination crisis um, is really in large part because of issues with the fire suppression system. Um, In May, 2021, 20,000 gallons of fuel spilled into a Red Hill tunnel and it got sucked up in the fire suppression drain line. So this is the pipeline that's supposed to take away water and firefighting foam after a fire. So that got taken away to a different part of the facility. And that's where it stayed for several months because the fire suppression system was supposed to move it above ground to a retention tank so it could be disposed of. The system didn't work though, uh, as she pointed out. And um, the fuel stayed there until that pipeline was uh, damaged in November, 2021 and then it was released into a different part of the facility, which was really close to the Red Hill well, and the rest is history. The water was contaminated, thousands of families were sickened, and we're in the situation we are today where the Navy and uh, Department of Defense are trying to close the facility. So your story talks about how uh, she points out that, you know, the the system wasn't really run properly um, based on what she was seeing, but then she got removed? Right, so Shannon Banks reported these concerns um, and she said that she was sidelined and what she was saying was minimized and ultimately she says she was removed. She was given what's called a letter of instruction in February of 2021 and she said she took that as a gag order. She wasn't allowed to talk with anyone outside of her direct command and it also appears that they took all her responsibilities away from her. So she was really fuels director in name only, and she was told to report to her deputy, who is actually her subordinate. So by the time the May leak happened, she wasn't even in charge. And when the military investigated the Red Hill spills, they found that that action, sidelining banks, raised the risk at Red Hill significantly. And it really, it sounds like it set the stage for everything that happened after that. So uh, your story says that by removing her, it kind of altered the military oversight of the day-to-day operations. Right. That's what they said. At the U.S. Pacific Fleet Investigation said by sidelining banks, it removed that day-to-day oversight that the military had over Red Hill without her. It was just the civilian deputy and um, that gentleman, John Floyd, um, apparently knew that the that fuel that I talked about that leaked in May that he knew it was missing for months according to the PAC fleet investigation and when it came out in November and was you know leaking into the water he said according to the investigation oh that's where it went that's where that 20,000 gallons of fuel went and your story says that she's been reassigned right Banks is now uh, at Kaneohe Bay at the Marine Corps base Um, and her attorney declined to comment for this story Okay, and so, you know, you just kind of wonder how this is all going to play out. I mean, we have not yet heard from the uh, Department of Defense uh, Inspector General. I know they've been poking around for some time. They announced they were going to do an investigation, but we haven't seen the results of that. That's right. Yeah, the the Pentagon declined to comment for this story, citing this ongoing investigation. 
uh, by the Inspector General and also the ongoing civil lawsuit involving thousands of families that were sickened by this this disaster. Well, we'll just have to see what happens. I mean, I know the military said that uh, some of those inspectors were actually here in town, um, you know, about a month ago. And so, yeah, hopefully they're close to winding this up. Yeah, we look forward to seeing their report for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, Christina, uh, for the story. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Uh, You can read that deep dive. Visit simplybeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's Sheraton Starlight Festival. Joanne Folletta conducts selections from Wagner's Ring Cycle and others from the Operatic Canon, August 12th at the Waikiki Shell. MyHSO.org. One Jerome Powell and other Grateful Dead fans, I'm sure, were sad to hear that Dead & Company are on its final tour. This is just like a microcosm of a little society where money's generated, people have similar beliefs of the music, whatever the case is, but they conglomerate to sell their wares, share their times, and move on. I'm Kai Rizdal, Inside the Deadhead Economy, next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The exhibition, Transformation, Modern Japanese Art, tells the story of a dramatically changing society. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. This week marked the 70th anniversary of the Korean Armistice Agreement. It brought peace but left the country divided. Commemoration ceremonies were held across the country, including one held at the Korean War Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. last night. Abram Kim is the executive director of the Council of Korean Americans based in our nation's capital. Here's a rebroadcast of the conversation Stephanie Hahn's interview with Kim on uh, his recent visit to Honolulu. They talk about the increasing influence of Korean immigrants on Asian American identity and politics. It's very clear you have to deal with issues of identity, group belonging. How did you come to be involved in this aspect of cultural life? I was actually part of the L.A. riot generation. I was an L.A. boy. I was born and grew up in Los Angeles. And many of my family members immigrated and had small businesses in L.A. And I was a college student in 1992 when I watched on TV much of Koreatown in flames. And and for me, as a young person, I was one of those individuals that thought, wow, what can we do about this? And when I realized that, you know, our society was not protecting our very communities that were part of the United States, you know, broader community, I think there's a realization that I had to get involved as well. And so I think uh, my own introduction was through these events and realizing that I had to get involved, not just talk about it or hope that other people get involved, but that, in fact, I had to get involved and also help teach my children and my family members to help encourage them to get involved. And, and through that, connecting with other individuals and other leaders in different cities across the country, we had these conversations where it's not only important to have a regional voice and local voice, but we had to have a national voice. And again, we had talked about it for many, many years, but finally we thought that in 2011 that we should form this national group that represents the Korean American community on a national stage. And thus was the birth of the Council of Korean Americans, the organization that I'm currently the ED for. I was a founding board member of that, and that's what got us all involved. What is the cultural influence of Korean Americans how might they also be influencing Asian American culture? 
I think in terms of Korean Americans, I mean, we've been here for 120 years. We are a growing population, actually rapidly growing population. In the 1970s, I think about 70,000 Korean Americans, but today we have over 2 million. And you could see the rapid immigration that had taken place over those years. And in terms of their influence on the United States, I mean, we just have to look at Netflix or TV or anything like that where entertainment where you see a lot of Korean faces as well as Korean American faces. And in terms of culture, a lot of these Korean Americans are actively becoming a part of mainstream TV and programming and things like that. But also in foods, many of our celebrity chefs like David Chang and Roy Choi and others have been making tremendous contribution in other areas of literary art and musical and performing arts. For example, the San Francisco opera music director is Korean, Korean-American. Eunsun Kim, I believe, is her name, and, and she is really rocking and redefining the opera world. There are many Korean-Americans that are actively involved in shaping our culture, academia, finance, business. You'll see a lot of very prominent Korean-Americans in those areas, and how it's shaping the AAPI community. Korean Americans are becoming more active, civically as well as politically. Actually, we had no Korean Americans in the House of Representatives, but starting in 2018, we had one, and then 2020, we had four. And so uh, more and more Korean Americans are representatives, both at the federal level as well as the local and, and, and state level, and we can certainly go into those areas. If what do you think accounts for this Korean-American presence in many roles of leadership? I mean, you're talking about a population of two million people. I was wondering if you might be able to speak to this. Sure. I think uh, one important event in Korean-American history is the L.A. riots that happened in 1992. Uh, listeners may remember that was because of the Rodney King case and the results of that. There were disruption and violence. The target of the violence, a lot of the, the looting and the burning in L.A. happened in the Koreatown area. You know, we won't go into all the details about the context of this, but this is a case where a community that has long been isolated, didn't have political representation, media representation, a community that didn't have very strong alliances and bridges with other ethnic and racial communities. And so it was an awakening for especially a lot of young people who were uh, 1.5 or second generation, they were born here. And that realization, I think, helped triggered many people to start to get involved civically, uh, get involved politically. It took some time, but I think the now we're seeing the fruits of that a couple of decades later. So there were first generation or second generation Korean Americans who maybe grew up or came of age in the 70s yeah. or 90s, but there's a different population now with more recent immigrants, the sons and daughters, et cetera. What is the difference? Well, I think one of the main difference is, is many of these first-generation families that did come over uh, during the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, and many of them came with really no language abilities or understanding of the United States. And so they were leaving what was comfortable for them. It was an investment for the future. Tremendous amount of risk, right? And it was survival. But through that survival, uh, a lot of important values were passed on to the next generation, such as resilience, risk-taking sacrifice and those kinds of things. And then those children grew up to be educated and go to college and many went to graduate school and they became professionals. And because they spent most of their lives here, they have a stronger American identity as opposed to their parents who probably spent much of their younger lives in Korea. They're more interested in what's going on in Korea. But the second generation or 1.5 is very much interested in what's going on here in the United States, get more civically engaged, how can we change and move forward as Americans? And so I think that difference in frame, as well as difference of focus and commitment to hear the United States, I think is a main difference between these generations. Korean Americans were really at the forefront of the Cold War. It was being enacted within the nation of Korea. And 70 years later, we are still in this position. How does this affect one's identity as a Korean-American. The Korean War impacted every Korean family in some way. I mean, even though we may not have been born then, 
our parents or our grandparents were impacted by the Korean War. It may have been some families, uh, their home used to be in North Korea, and they came down to the South seeking freedom, or their, their homes were destroyed in the war, or as a result of the war, they lived in some form of poverty. Korea, if you think about it, right after the Korean War, was at the same per capita level of many of the impoverished African nations at that time. And so, so as a result of that, I think you know, all of our families and all the national psyche of Korea was, was shaped. And so those are important legacies as well as um, the legacy of coming out of that war for survival created a, a certain kind of um, you know, desire to succeed and survive. And that attitude came with many immigrants who moved from Korea to the United States. The Cold War, the Korean War, is an important part of the Korean-American psyche because we came from that. That's part of our roots and our family. Uh, even though we may not have lived in the Korean War, and we are you know, professionals here, Korean-Americans, and may have not even have been born in Korea, it's an impo important part of our family narrative. And so we are still interested in what's going on in the Korean Peninsula and whether the security and the future of South Korea. And we are interested in a strong relationship because uh, between the United States and South Korea to ensure the security of the peninsula. What do you see as the biggest challenge for Asian Americans moving forward in terms of participation within a national dialogue or even a global dialogue? Number one, we have to continue to change our culture within our community. If we're going to have a voice, we need to participate. We need to vote. We need to contribute to candidates that are, represent our interests. We need to get involved in actually running for office. I think that part one is actually changing ourselves and reflecting on what areas that we can do to encourage others within our community and our family members to get involved and vote. Because if you're not actively involved and you're not electing leaders that represent you at the table, then, as they say, if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu, right? And so, <laughs> so I think that's that's probably one of the biggest challenge. Uh, and secondly, is how can we work together with other groups, other ethnic and racial groups, in commonality and finding areas of interest that we can help support each other and invest in those relationships. You know, taking on the tough issues that divide our communities as well. Racism even exists within the Asian American community, right? And we have to be frank and transparent and be able to deal with those and talk about them as well. You know, there's a lot of self-reflection, but also how to build bridges. I think those are the two biggest challenges, but biggest opportunities for greater influence for the Asian American communities. That was Abraham Kim, executive director of the Council of Korean Americans, based in Washington, D.C., who was in Honolulu recently. He spoke with HBR's Stephanie Han this past January on Korean Americans reckoning with Asian American life. at the world from a Swiss point of view. They work to live, they don't live to work. Go deep sea diving. We need more eyes on the ocean. It's become kind of this global blue carpet to just sweep things under. And get a taste of Midwestern American comfort food. The accompaniments with Cincinnati chili, I don't know, defy both expectation and reason, really. On the next Travel with Rick Steves. Beginning Sunday at noon, following New Dimensions. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University.
Ocean Race is an international sailing race around the world that's been held every three or four years since 1973. It's a six-month, 36,000-mile journey. Teams start in Spain and then head east, making several stops along the way. They navigate the Southern Ocean below Australia and South America and then across the Atlantic Ocean up to Denmark with the finish in Italy. This year's winner of the ocean race was 11th Hour Racing, a team headquartered in Rhode Island and co-founded by Punahou graduate Mark Towell. Towell is a grandson of noted local civil engineer uh, Richard Towell. He was also one of several young sailors featured in the 2008 Disney documentary Morning Light. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Towell in our studio to talk about the victory. When most people think about team sports, Things like football, basketball, baseball probably come to mind. But I read that the ocean race is the toughest test of a team in sport. Why is that? So professional basketball, football, baseball, you you see these athletes perform at a really high level. The amount of time that they have to perform for is relatively limited. And again, I'm coming from the perspective of we push our boat 100% for 38 days straight. That's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So a little bit different than other sports. And the other thing is that you're living, it's a competition, but it's also an adventure. So you're down in some of the most remote corners of the world. You're living in and amongst your teammates. I mean, we literally, this is a bare bones carbon fiber racing machine. So there's no toilet. There's no bed. There's no shower. We eat freeze-dried food. We turn salt water into fresh water with a desalinator. Everything's incredibly weight conscious. So you're literally sleeping on top of your teammates and you're pushed to the extremes of what's physically, but almost more importantly, mentally possible. And we've all been had situations in life where you're frustrated with someone you work with or just need a little space. That space doesn't exist on board this boat. And so there's a big there's a big challenge within that as well. As you were talking about kind of life on the boat, I was drawing comparisons in my mind to the Hokulea, but it seems like the Hokulea probably has it easier. I mean, they're eating, you know, like fresh ahi and they're you know going more at a leisurely pace. It sounds like life aboard a boat in the ocean race is pretty strict. It seems like you're, you're there focused on the competition. Yeah. So I was very fortunate to be involved with Polynesian Voyaging Society and Hokulea, particularly in high school when I was growing up. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about the parallels, both the similarities and the differences between the two mentalities, I'd call them. In the ocean race, everything's about speed, performance, precision. We're looking to maximize everything out of the boat and the crew at all times. And it's all about going as fast as you can. We have incredibly accurate technology on board to tell us to multiple decimal places exactly where we are in the earth mm-hmm. and to anticipate what weather's coming days out. And on the Hokulea, it's incredibly different, right? It's all about the journey and not about the destination. It's about getting there, not how fast you're getting there. There's no modern navigational technology. It's all about being connected and utilizing the stars and the wind and the moon and the sun. But at the end of the day, even though they are so different, you're still on board a vessel in the middle of the ocean. And from my perspective, the ocean is our greatest teacher. You still have to be connected with the elements and the ocean puts you in situations that you just can't simulate on land. And those that is constant, whether you're on the Hokulea or on an Amoka yeah. 60 or on any other boat, in my opinion. It sounds like the ocean and sailing have been a part of your life for a long time. Growing up here in Hawaii, how does that inform your sailing team now? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I feel so blessed to have been raised here in Hawaii on Oahu. I found sailing kind of randomly. My, my parents don't sail. They both work really hard, and so they actually signed me up for sailing lessons kind of as daycare during spring break in elementary school, and I just fell in love with that. I just could not get enough of the connection between the wind and the ocean and being in control of your own little boat and very quickly sucked me in. And it went from something that was fun to then I started taking it really seriously, competitively. And I, at the same time, was involved with PBS, so I, I had that that sort of different connection with the ocean. And yeah, the ocean just became a big part of my life. And I remember going off to college on the mainland and and being so, I guess, inquisitive about the future of our state and the fact that at that time we were the most oil dependent state in the nation, even though we had sun and wind and geothermal and all these natural resources. And so I felt really kind of like connected to this place and trying to understand more about what we can do to make it better. 
And so fast forward a few years, I was able to sail around the world for the first time in the ocean race back in 2014 and sailing through some places that I had never even dreamed could be possible, like the Malacca Strait coming into the South China Sea or down the Indian coast and just seeing the amount of marine debris and disrespect, frankly, that's happening in our ocean was eye-opening to me. And I really wanted to then use, I also learned through that first campaign that this race and this team is is a platform. It's a platform to to talk about something. At that time, our sponsor was a uh, Turkish medical device company. So I, I could tell you a lot about minimally invasive cardiovascular <laughs> surgeries. Uh, it's not a big passion of mine, but what is a passion of mine is the health of our ocean. And so I really, with my partner, Charlie Enright, uh, we set out to try to find partners, funding partners who were aligned with our values and wanted to try to make a real difference. And that's what we've done with our team. I was very impressed that ocean conservation, ocean sustainability, concern for the health of the ocean is a big part of the ocean race and is a big part of 11th hour racing as mm -hmm. well. How does winning the ocean race, how does that help fulfill your mission? Yeah. So from our perspective, to be a professional sports team or a pro professional athlete alone is not enough in this day and age. You need to stand for something. And our team has had two primary goals, one, to win the ocean race, and two, to improve the health of our oceans. A big part of that starts with advocacy and awareness and through the following that we gain through being involved in this race. That's a big part of it. But there's a lot of people out there talking about a lot of stuff. And for us, it's really all about action. So We've really built out, in my opinion, a quite a robust program that allows us to walk the walk. For example, we built the first ever, or uh, we, we built the boat that we raced on. It's called an Amoka 60, and we commissioned the first ever life cycle assessment of that build. So we tracked our waste, our water, our energy consumption. We took a really deep dive into our supply chain. We understood what the true impact was of building a modern race boat in this event. And I can tell you that it's 550 tons of carbon, which is a tremendous impact. And so we've also set standards and goals for how to try to bring that down in the future. We have a grantee program that we fund and we work with local nonprofits on all the of the different cities and countries that we stop in. So we're just trying to do a lot of things to leave a legacy and, and to be leaders in the space and try to hopefully leave the oceans in a better place than we found them. I think for us, you know, growing up here in Hawaii with the ocean so close by to us and, and so ingrained into our way of life, I think it's real easy for us to think that we have this special relationship with the ocean. In your travels and you know in your competitions and meeting other crew members do you find that how we feel about the ocean is mirrored in the people in the sailing industry or along coastal communities i'd like to think that that's the case but the reality is it's not what i have observed is that communities that are island-based i think have a much stronger appreciation for the ocean than folks that don't there's also obviously a big equality piece to this. You know, so we spent some time in South Africa and I got to go to a, a township, this place called Kailicha, which was incredibly eye-opening. Some people had never left this township in their entire life. You're talking about people that are, you know, living in, you know, sort of like tin huts with mm -hmm. 10 other people and speaking with them and trying to understand what their priorities are. I mean, they're, they're, they're just trying to survive, right? Yeah. And what most people don't realize is that the ocean is responsible for one out of every two breaths we take. It's the biggest carbon sink that we have in the world. The ocean, even for people who've never seen the ocean in their entire life, plays a pivotal role in their existence on this planet. And I think it's hard for people to understand that, particularly if you don't have a relationship with it. So I think people from island nations, I'm thinking about some friends I have from New Zealand or you know even Australia, other uh, other islands as well. People I grew up sailing with here in Hawaii, we have this just kind of understanding, I, I think that you're talking about. A, you don't just take, it, you have to give as well. And I think there's a responsibility there. Do you think there's any significance to the fact that the two people who founded 11th Hour Racing are from our country's two smallest states located on opposite ends of the country? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah, my, my partner, Charlie Enright, and I founded this team. It's our third campaign in the ocean race, as you mentioned. Rhode Island actually is the ocean state. That's what it's called. Right. And people don't realize it's a tiny little state in, in the Northeast. I, I feel like it's actually the Hawaii of, of the East Coast. I've got, I went to university there. I've spent a fair bit of time there sailing and stuff. 
and Charlie's story, albeit his upbringing, albeit on the other side of the country, was was quite similar to mine. He grew up in and around the ocean, very aware of the impact that we were having on it, and wanted to do something about it. And I think that's what that's what what binds us together and makes our partnership so strong. On the eleventh hour racing website. You say if you could be a marine animal, <laughs> you'd be a sea turtle. You've done your research. <laughs> why Why a honu? I love seeing honu. I think that they are, I just love the, the pace with which they move. Yeah. And that's coming from a guy who moves pretty quickly. So I think I aspire to be a honu yeah. and to move. I'm always trying to slow down and to be aware of my surroundings, to take everything in and to enjoy this life that we have. We only have one. I think, you know, this ball and chain that's in our pockets right now called a cell phone and the way that the pace with which the world moves is is pretty quick these days. And I think Honu have got it all figured out. Mark Towell, thanks so much for coming into the station to talk story with me about the ocean race and about your victory. Really appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much for having me. That was 11th Hour Racing co-founder and CEO Mark Towell talking with HBR's Russell Subiono about winning the 2023 ocean race last month. That's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, more on the 70th anniversary of the Korean Armistice. Call or talk back line. Leave your comments, 808-792-8217. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. Sign up for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.